This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Spencer Brudig. I'm Will Johnson. This show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. It's just one of those cases is what happened to Jolene Cummings, and that's something that we don't know. I beg you, I beg you as a mother to please keep coming forward with any information that you have, no matter how small. It's kind of funny. They keep me in solitary confinement like it's a bad thing. (laughs) It's heaven, girl. I love it. Jolene Cummings, a 34-year-old mother of three, was last seen alive on May 12, 2018. She was leaving the Tangles Hair Salon in Yulee, Florida, where she worked. Heather Crawford is the evening news anchor at First Coast News in Jacksonville. She remembers when Jolene was first reported missing. She was supposed to meet the next thing on Mother's Day, her ex-husband to pick up her three young kids. Mother's Day happened to be her birthday as well. She never showed up. The next day she was reported uh, missing. Right this minute, deputies in Nassau County are asking for your help. Finding this missing woman, this is a missing mom named Jolene Cummings. She hasn't been seen since Saturday and did not show up to pick up her kids from her ex-husband on Mother's Day. Mindy Wadley is a digital content producer at First Coast News and has followed the case from the beginning. Her family was so obviously distraught and just desperate for answers, particularly her mother, who was always very vocal about um, wanting to bring her home and that it was just so unlike her to, you know, to not be in touch on Mother's Day, particularly because she would have not been away from her children on that special day. After nearly 48 hours without hearing from her daughter, Jolene and Hilliard, Ann Johnson contacted Nassau County Sheriff's Office and filed a missing persons report. See, Jolene was supposed to meet up with her ex-husband in this parking lot to pick up her children. Never showed up, according to a police report. Jolene's mother told me she is devoted to her children and would do anything for them. So it does not make sense that she would all of a sudden leave them behind. Jolene's mother adds, while the 34-year-old is going through a divorce and custody battle, she's always contacted family if she ever needed to talk and would answer the phone if she went away for the weekend without the children. Calls, though, in the last few days have gone straight to voicemail. According to the husband in the police report, he claims, however, she's probably on a bender somewhere. Family simply does not believe that. There had been police call-outs to Jolene's home in the days leading up to her disappearance. Neighbors overheard Jolene and her ex-boyfriend, Jason Gee, arguing about his needing a place to stay. Jolene says Jason Gee did not hit her, but has in the past, according to the complaint report. When she refused to let him stay, she called the Nassau County Sheriff's Office, and Gee ran out the back door. Jolene believed because he has an outstanding warrant. Police want you to be on the lookout for this beige 2006 Ford Expedition. Gee was eventually located by police days later, on May 15th, and arrested on an outstanding warrant for violation of probation. But then, Jolene's vehicle was found, abandoned, in a Home Depot parking lot. But that wasn't all. And then security camera footage showed that her co-worker, Kimberly Kessler, who she knew as Jennifer Seibert, was abandoning Jolene's SUV around 1.15 in the morning. So this is on May 13th. Then surveillance video captures her walking to a convenience store close by. Other surveillance video um, showed Kimberly Kessler tossing something into a trash bin near the hair salon. And then that woman, Kimberly Kessler, or Jennifer Seibert, as they knew her at the hair salon, was also located by police. At a truck stop about two counties over, and the sheriff said she'd been living out of her car. So um, 
very, very mysterious and strange that um, this woman she worked at the hair salon with was living out of her car and she was found at a truck stop. And she was first arrested, um, charged with stealing Jolene Cummings' car. On May 22nd, just over a week after Jolene had gone missing and Kessler had been located, police held a news conference. We are here to provide you with an update on the disappearance of Jolene Cummings. Naturally, investigators wanted to talk to and did to Jolene's ex-husband, Jason Cummings, who she was supposed to pick up her kids from on Sunday. The last person who had supposedly seen Jolene was another hairstylist who also worked on Saturday, May the 12th. This hairstylist had only worked at Tangles around a month or so. The salon was closed on Sunday and Monday. The salon was supposed to open back up on Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. So NCSO investigators were there to talk to this person to see if she had any information as to the whereabouts of Jolene. She failed to show up for work, and the address that she gave the owner of the shop where she was supposed to be living was a bogus address. On Tuesday afternoon, we received information that a vehicle matching Jolene's 2006 beige Ford Expedition was seen parked in the parking lot close to the Home Depot in Yulee. We found some camera footage that showed Jolene's vehicle being parked around 1.17 a.m. Sunday morning. The video showed the driver sit there for a few minutes and then get out. We were hoping to see Jolene get out of that vehicle, but who do you think it was? The Tangles hairstylist, who was supposedly the last person to see Jolene. This individual was known as Jennifer Seibert. Through our investigative techniques, we finally located Cyber and her vehicle, which is a 2016 Kia Soul, black in color. Through our investigation, we have attained evidence, which we are not releasing at this time, which leads us to believe Jolene is not alive. We have subsequently found out that Cybert's real name is Kimberly Kessler, K-E-S-S-L-E-R, date of birth May 9th, 1968, and she is from Butler, Pennsylvania. She had also been using a fake social security number. She has since been charged by the FBI with a federal offense of possession of a counterfeit passport. Kessler is a suspect in the disappearance of Jolene Cummings. We are working to obtain all and gather all evidence we possibly can related to this incident and additional charges are forthcoming. And just as we were learning that investigators did not believe Jolene would be found alive, her mother, Ann Johnson, stood before the cameras. We are all heartbroken. My daughter was a loving mother to her children. Her children were her life. I need you, the news, the public, to help assist the law enforcement agencies to be their ears, to be their eyes. Someone out there, someone out there knows something. I beg you, I beg you as a mother to please keep coming forward with any information that you have, no matter how small. Help with any possible leads that can help locate my daughter for her, my three grandchildren who miss her so much. We want closure. Thank you. 
Good evening from Yuli. An update here from Jolene Cummings. Update now we can tell you from the Sheriff's Office, Jennifer Siebert, the employee here for about a month, has been taken in on grand theft auto charges. She was noted on surveillance video, according to Nassau County Sheriff's Office, as exiting Jolene's Ford Expedition 2006, just two miles down the road in the Home Depot surveillance video. As we learned about Kessler's arrest, we begin to learn more about her past and about a woman who clearly seemed to be hiding something. She would move around, you know, to different places and no one really seemed to know much about her, um, who she really truly was. She's gone by dozens of names. Uh, the sheriff said that Kimberly Kessler used 18 different aliases. She lived in 33 cities since the 90s. So this is a woman who moved around a lot, went by lots of different names. And Jennifer Seibert, it turned out, was actually the name of a teenager who died in a car crash back in the 80s. And she was from the same county where Kimberly Kessler grew up. And so documents that have been released um, over the years by the state attorney's office show that detectives were told that Kessler would allegedly find names to use off of gravestones in cemeteries. So this is a woman with a very troubled past. First Coast News digital reporter Destiny Johnson did get in touch with Tim Edwards, who dated and had a child with Kessler in 1998, who he knew as Melissa McKernan. Edwards did not want to go on camera, but when asked if Kessler was known to be a violent person, he said she had a temper. Edwards said after her son was taken away from her in 1999, she went into social services with a handgun and tried unsuccessfully to get him back. That's the last time he talked to her. Kessler, he said, was arrested, then skipped town after that. Edwards was eventually awarded custody, and the son is now a healthy 20-year-old. Kessler's co-workers at the hair salon also shared stories about her, stories that today, in retrospect, seem telling and chilling at times. Told her to do something that she did not want to do, you were on her bad side. So she basically would make it her um, mission to show show you she basically carried the notebook everywhere with her and she would be writing down like word for word that w what was being said she was reserved kept to herself um did not associate much with anybody she wouldn't let anyone touch her hair um when i told her that she needed to learn certain things she told me that she was only there even though it was a cosmetology school that she was only there to learn how to barber I remember one girl said that she asked if she could keep some of her um, sunburned skin that was peeling off. It was always this uh, interesting thing where we didn't really know much about her. And um, she was always kept to, to herself and her mission was to get through school. Remember, Kessler still hadn't been charged in connection with Jolene Cummings' disappearance. But all the information emerging from various aliases from her colleagues... It all seemed to lead down some dark paths. 50-year-old Kimberly Kessler disappeared from Butler, Pennsylvania in 2004. Eight years later, her mother reported her missing to Pennsylvania State Police. In 2013, Kessler made her way to the First Coast using a fake name and a fake social security number. Kessler went by Jennifer Cyber, which according to an online database, matches the name of a woman buried in the same area she disappeared from. We also found her cosmetology license under the same name, Cyber. She used it to get several jobs. We confirmed she worked at Tony and Guy Hairdressing Academy in Jacksonville from September to April of 2014. 
Sometime later, she started working at Sports Clips in Jacksonville and then Great Clips in Yulee. In 2017, she worked at another Great Clips in St. John's County. According to the owner at Woody's Barbecue in Fernandina Beach, she started working at the restaurant in March of this year and quit after two weeks on the job. Around the same time, she was reportedly working at Tangle's Hair Salon, also in Fernandina Beach until earlier this month. During her time in Jacksonville, police discovered Kessler's fake identity, and she was wanted by police on grand theft auto charges. First Coast News also caught up with Kessler's mother back in her home state of Pennsylvania. Connie Kessler says she hasn't seen her daughter Kimberly since at least 2004, but that Kimberly is a very sweet person and that her nomadic lifestyle was a result of a heartbreak any mother could sympathize. That's the word precocious. Very precocious and courageous. Connie Kessler recalls her daughter Kimberly's personality. Her sense of humor, she has a fantastic sense of humor. But even she has to stretch her memory back a long time. I heard from her in 2004. About the time, she says, after her daughter had had a baby boy, Evan. He had told her that Evan had died. She wanted to know where he might be buried. One of two relationships Carrie says were abusive, setting the stage for a nomadic life and many aliases. She was afraid of the father, and she felt, I guess, that in order to go and find him, she would have to do it anonymously. Carrie, who had spoken with Kimberly three times Friday, didn't talk much about her daughter's suspected involvement in the disappearance and possible death of Yuli Hair Salon co-worker Jolene Cummings. I don't trust the investigation. <laughs> She did talk of her grandson, who she thinks is alive wherever he might be. He missed out on a, a wonderful, courageous human being. I hope he somehow gets the chance to experience that at some point. Aching for their shared loss and for what she won't give up. Wherever her journey led her to this point, I can't judge that, I won't judge that. You know, it's, I'll be there till the end, whatever happens. Eventually, a police interview with Kessler shortly after her arrest would be made public. What name do you want me to, to call you? Because I was talking to the detective that drove you up and he said I might have been calling you by the wrong name. It's funny that St. John's didn't tell you. When you want to bring my fingerprints through, they come mm -hmm. up as Kimberly Lee Kessler. That's about it. So I would prefer to be called Kim. Okay, okay. But okay I just want to make sure I'm, that I'm calling you. Uh, by your right But if you bring them through, I mean, the last time I got picked up was back in 1999, and I bonded out, and it took them, I don't remember, it was a couple weeks, I don't know if it was two and a half weeks or three and a half weeks before they actually, you know, matched them matched up. Matched them up. Yeah, it didn't like, but that was 1999, so maybe it was a little bit slower then. Okay. But I don't know, there's like lots of people on the face of the planet, so maybe it still takes time. I'm not sure. And, and it may be too that you, since you've had this agonist for, for so long, you know, it probably you, you've probably done a lot of stuff since that time, and so you've actually kind of got a, you know, you've got a history under that name, so it probably shows up in different databases and stuff like that. And that's mm -hmm. just a guess, and maybe, maybe that's why it's, it's happening like that. Oh, no, fingerprints are fingerprints. Fingerprints are fingerprints, and I agree. <laughs> like, but, but I, have, I, uh, I didn't erase them with acid, so they are the same. And, Just and, saying. And, and I agree with you, but I haven't, I haven't run your fingerprints. And if St. John's did, they, they failed to, to notify us that, you know, uh, of the different names, so I apologize. Perhaps, perhaps they just thought I was a, you know, a nut job, so they just ignored me, but it, it will eventually come up, so. We'll just call you Kim. Okay, if, thanks. If you're good with Kim, can you just go through when you work with her on that Saturday, so I can, is there anything you can tell me that, 
Did she ever talk to you about a, a boyfriend? Uh, I, know she, I know she's got a husband. I know she had a boyfriend. Did she ever talk about anybody she was scared of? She, did she ever say anything that would that she wanted to run away and get away from it all? I mean, you know. I don't remember hearing anything. She would have different conversations sometimes with different clients. She I, was saying CPS came to her house. She was telling one client that I caught a little blip of it in between listening to YouTube and the phone ringing. And, and she, I remember hearing her say she thought her her ex-husband or her husband was doing to get out of paying child support. That's all I heard, and I don't remember ever hearing about a boyfriend ever, but then again, I don't always really pay attention. Can I tell you who she was hanging around with, or was no. she into anything that maybe she shouldn't have been She would just or... say to me, like, you know, the time or two that she'd say, I'm just going home and having a quiet night at home, or like, I don't have the kids tonight, or, you know, whatever, I'm just going to enjoy this. And I'd be like, you're young, why don't you go out? She's like, no, I don't need a man in my life. But here she had a boyfriend, I didn't even know that. Was so. she involved in any bad habits or anything that could get her in trouble? Um, I, I can't say that it that she did, but I did find a bag that I believe had crystal meth in it, just a little bit in the bottom, a tiny baggie back by the back door. Did you guys ever <laughs> hang out after work? Did you ever go anywhere together? No. Okay. Um, she ever allowed to use your car? You're allowed to use her car? Did you ever go anywhere together like that? No. Okay, okay. But you asked me all that before I answered before. Ah, so. uh, okay. I was, That's not, all right. There's video of you dropping her car off at the Home Depot parking lot there in Uly and walking across and going into the uh, yeah. gate station and getting a taxi cab back down to, uh, they had it listed as Dick Swain's, but it was back down there to where Tangles is, okay? And that's why you're, you're, you know, you're charged with a grand theft auto. And I'm not trying to trick you, I'm not trying to fool you. You're opening up to me and I'm opening up to you, okay? Mm -hmm. That's the reason you're charged with that. You're not charged with anything else, okay? Um, but something happened to Jolene. And, you know, we actually sent our, sent our crime scene unit out to process um, tangles. And there was some evidence there, okay? We have also, and, and I don't want you to think I've been fooling you, I, you know, I just want to talk to you and get to know you a little bit because I think something, what's your name? Well, something something, something that, that you didn't plan happened, but let me tell you what, what we did, okay? Because I just want to be honest with you because I think something bad happened that you didn't intend to happen, but um, uh, we have, you know, taking a look at your car on the accident, we, we went out and, um, uh, went to your storage unit on the island. And we did that all on a legal basis. We had search warrants for them all, okay. Um, we've got the, the video of you at the, when you go in and buy a bottle of water, you bought it on your credit card. Uh, you paid for the, uh, for the cab on your credit card. Uh, you used the clerk's phone to make the phone call to the, car, to the cab company. Um, we also have recovered your shoes that has Jolene's blood on your shoes. So I just want you to, if something happened that you didn't intend to happen, I want to talk to you about it. I don't think you're an evil person. I don't think you're a mean person. I think you have done one hell of a job getting through the last 25 years. Um, so let me reply this way, and you may not like the answer. I would like legal counsel.
For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson, along with Reed Redman. Spencer Brudig is not here with us this week. He will be back uh, in coming weeks. Reed, and we will return with part two of the Jolene Cummings case next week on True Crime Chronicles. In the meantime, we wanted to tell you uh, about a new podcast and a, a really fascinating topic that we've dealt with a bit here on True Crime Chronicles, cases that have to do with people who are behind bars and innocent, potentially innocent. We'll talk more about this this idea. I'm joined by the host and producer of Record of Wrong, Kara Levin in Minneapolis, Emily Havik. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Will. Thanks for having me. Emily, this is like a concept that as I listen to your new podcast and the episodes that are available, uh, in the first episode, you talk about the population of people behind bars who are innocent, or we don't really know, obviously, but it could be anywhere from like one to 5%, correct me if I'm wrong, which is anywhere from 20,000 to 100,000 people, right? I mean, it's the number is staggering. It's a huge amount of people. And the thing that's really striking about that is take, you know, the low end estimate that there are um, 20,000 people in U.S. prisons who are wrongfully convicted, who are innocent of the crimes that they're incarcerated for. Um, We've only had under 3,000 exonerations in the U.S. since 1989. So the vast majority of those people are still in prison or perhaps have been released, have finished their sentences, but still live with those convictions. So if you really look at the numbers and the probable estimates, and then of course that goes up to 100,000 or we don't really know. So if you look at the numbers, you're left with this understanding that most of the people who are innocent of the crimes that they've been incarcerated for, um, we still don't know that they're innocent. And so when you start looking at these cases, you're faced with this prospect of, You sort of have to look at both cases of people who have been exonerated and cases of people who lost their fight in order to really understand what happens in these cases, because we have to assume that a lot of the people who are innocent have lost that fight. So that kind of (laughs) leaves you with this tricky nuance of you just also don't want to interview a bunch of people who, you know, committed crimes are incarcerated from them for them and then are claiming innocence. So I wrestled with that a lot as I went through this, trying to figure out um, what cases are are deeply flawed enough to kind of divert deserve this look. And I think that's what innocence projects wrestle with and prosecutors and defense attorneys wrestle with as well. Emily, as Will mentioned, we've covered a handful of overturned conviction stories on this podcast and on our other Vault Studios shows. And I think there's there's almost something of a tendency to want to look at these stories where a wrongful conviction has been overturned as happy stories because they end with somebody getting their freedom back, their rightfully deserved freedom back. But yes, that day is happy, but but the reality is that our justice system failed that person and took away their freedom wrongfully in the first place. And that's something you look at in Record of Wrong, that A, that's not always the outcome, but B, even when that is the outcome, a conviction is overturned, just how long and difficult of a road it is to get there once somebody has been convicted and lost the presumption of innocence in our justice system. Can you speak about a couple of those obstacles that individuals who've been wrongfully convicted face? Absolutely, Reed. Um, It's really incredible because I didn't know a lot of this until I started this research, but you're right that once a person is convicted, they obviously lose their presumption of innocence. Um, They lose their right to an attorney, which is a huge obstacle because 
if you're now in prison, you don't have any income. Um, a vast majority of people cannot afford an attorney at that point. And so you'll see people filing their own appeals. It's called pro se, where you just file an appeal on your own behalf. And of course, these appeals are very complicated. It's really hard to do if you're not a lawyer. So that's a huge obstacle. Um, another one is that the system is actually built now to preserve your conviction and keep you convicted. And so our criminal justice system is built with the premise that the verdict delivered by a jury is to be protected. And it's sort of this system that says, you know, we're going to trust this jury to decide if you're guilty or innocent. And then once they decide, we are going to protect their decision. And so while that's built on sort of this, this noble value of, you know, trusting a jury of your peers to deliver a verdict, it becomes problematic when you do have a person who's innocent and the whole system is set up to keep them from proving it. So I think that's really tricky. The other thing is that with appeals, a lot of times you have to find new evidence. So even if you know something went wrong, but it's not new at a certain point, um, it doesn't really work to overturn your conviction. The other thing is that if you have a lawyer who di didn't bring it up at the right time, there's a lot of procedural hurt hurdles that keep you from using that evidence. So it's just a very complicated system. The other thing that I was really struck by is that these convictions haunt people long after they've been freed. And so one man that we spoke with, Javon Davis, he was one of the successful cases that we looked at. After nearly six years in prison, a judge overturned his conviction. So he lost six years of his life. Once he had been, had his conviction vacated, he's been, you know, exonerated by many definitions of that term and had his name cleared. He went back to the state and said, I'd like compensation for these years in prison. And there is a law in Minnesota that allows you to do that. But the law is also set up to make it very difficult. So he has to now prove that he's innocent. And the prosecutors who convicted him still believe he's guilty, even though they said they don't have the evidence to prove it again at a new trial. So they're fighting him in court now. Um, even though he's not convicted, for all intents and purposes, it's it should be as if he's never been convicted of this crime. But the the standard is so high to get him any financial relief. So Emily, another type of story that you look at throughout this series is cases where an individual has been offered a plea deal at a crucial moment post conviction that they've they've decided to take because it, it seems like the best decision in that moment. Talk a little bit about those cases. Right. This was one of the most heartbreaking things in, in looking at these claims of innocence and wrongful convictions is that I talked to two different people, Sherman Townsend and Terry Olson, who had maintained their innocence over both of them about a decade in prison. Um, and they were represented by innocence projects. So at that point, they, they've got these very highly skilled lawyers who have taken an interest in their case and believe that they're innocent. And they're presenting new evidence of innocence. And they're kind of at this key moment. Sherman Townsend actually had a different person confess to the crime and say, it was actually me. And that person was the chief witness who had testified against him. And that person went on the record and said, I committed this crime. For Terry Olson, it was that the chief witness in his case had recanted um, multiple times and said, we never did this. And so th these people had pretty strong <laughs> claims, and they were at very crucial moments in this fight. And at those turning points, prosecutors would come to them and say, you know what, we're actually going to offer you a deal. If you drop your appeal, we'll let you out right now. I'll say that again. 
if you drop your appeal, we'll let you out right now. And if you think about someone who's been in prison for 10 years, who hasn't seen their family or been outside the prison walls, that deal is essentially almost too good to pass up. And so the interesting thing was that I I heard these anecdotes and I wasn't sure how common this was, but I actually found new research from a guy in um, Madison. He co-founded the Wisconsin Innocence Project. His name is Keith Findlay. Um, he, He is now a law professor at the University of Wisconsin Law School, and he actually pulled data from 272 and counting cases represented by innocence projects where there was new evidence of innocence. And he found that almost a quarter of a time And he found that almost a quarter of the time, um, prosecutors would offer a deal like this. And so what it kind of showed is that this this is actually a pretty routine tool in the toolkit. It doesn't happen all the time, but it is something that prosecutors do fairly regularly. And it it casts some, some questions or it raises some questions about whether these deals are ethical because, in fact, they're offered to somebody who is so desperate um, that that maybe they're not really a choice at all, right? And Terry Olson found an attorney who tried to take this case to the U.S. Supreme Court for him and basically argue that a deal like this shouldn't be binding because um, it basically represents coercion, that it's, that it's so difficult to say no that it's basically not a choice. And they lost. Um, the Supreme Court did not review their petition. So I guess right now we don't know if these deals will be, continue to be used. Certainly for now they will be. Emily, you know, you've done exhaustive research on this and uh, it, it, it's really amazing. And I urge all of our listeners of True Crime Chronicles to check out Record of Wrong. There are five episodes out. You will have how many total, depending on when you hear this podcast? Six. So um, the next episode comes out on Tuesday, the 22nd. And I'm guessing you can uh, listen and subscribe and follow and do all that good stuff to Record of Wrong wherever you listen to podcasts, right? Absolutely. Emily Havik at CARE 11 in Minneapolis. Thank you again so much for telling us about Record of Wrong. And uh, we hope to have you on the show again sometime. Appreciate it. Thank you, Will and Reed. I appreciate it. All right, we'll be back next week with the continuation of our story about Jolene Cummings in Florida. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson.